electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me, Jim Kramer. Let's talk about the mega caps. Just because we haven't seen the likes of them before doesn't make them bogus. They didn't get their trillion-dollar valuations by fooling the most people. They got there because there was nowhere else for them to go but up. Something demonstrated once again this very evening with incredible reports from Amazon and Meta. And by the way, an extremely profitable report from Apple. Let me ask you a question. Is Microsoft supposed to trade at a discount to its valuation because it had $227 billion in revenues last year and $82 billion in earnings? How do you not give Alphabet a big valuation if it has $100 billion in cash and nearly $100 billion in earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization? You want to keep Meta down on the farm after clubs the estimates, both top and bottom line? What's a stock investor supposed to do? Just sell them because they're big? After a day when the Dow gained 370 points, SB jumped 1.25% and NASDAQ rallied 1.3%. We're faced with a confluence of events that makes it hard to value anything. I mean, the other day, Alphabet and Microsoft reported terrific numbers, yet their stocks were scorned. Today, though, Amazon and Meta platforms reported spectacular numbers, and their stocks caught fire in after-hours trading, especially Meta, where business is so fantastic that they're going to pay a nice-sized dividend and a boosted buyback. We also heard from Apple, which had strong headline numbers, but China was not so hot, and China's what everyone seems to care about and focus on endlessly, and that's why the stock got dinged in after-hours. Apple, I say even after a report that isn't as strong as that of the Chinese-deprived Amazon and Meta. Oh, and it don't trade it. It's constantly disconcerting to me that people complain about how something must be wrong with the market, given that a handful of tech companies represent such a preponderance of the S&P 500. I always come back and say, what are we supposed to do? Do we give them a haircut because they're so big and powerful? Like some sort of handicap? When they're up against underdog companies, should the, like those smaller players get extra points to make the contest better? This isn't draft king for heaven's sake! There's no point spread in the stock market. There's no under, there's no over. Oh, and it's not like this is some restricted club where you can be blackballed because someone doesn't improve your sector. Consider the case of Eli Lilly versus Tesla. You know I've been on a campaign to can the term Magnificent Seven label because Tesla no longer deserves it. 
something that a Delaware judge made a lot easier the other day when she threw out Elon Musk's pay package, a package that would have given him roughly a tenth of the Tesla's market, current market capitalization for doing well. Elon now says he's moving the company to Texas, presumably because no intruding judge will question his compensation. Unfortunately, Musk has now put the idea on the table that it may not be worth his time to take Tesla to another level in artificial intelligence and all sorts of other great stuff. If he doesn't get double the stake in the company or at least double the voting power, maybe he doesn't want to do it anymore. Musk doesn't want to be challenged by the outfits that analyze pay packages or by activist shareholders who can swoop in without a lot of blocking. I think he's the only CEO of the seven that wants to hold his company hostage for more money, even as most of these other execs deserve a lot more, too. I mean, if you relatively against that. How about the more valuable Eli Lilly with the revolutionary drug that's being shown to help diabetes, crush obesity, deal effectively with hypertension, perhaps help the 365 million people who have osteoarthritic knees or those who have sleep apnea or who drink too much? Lilly's $627 billion market cap now exceeds Tesla's, yet no one seems to begrudge them for that achievement. Lilly's not called into question the way the tech guys are because it's a drug company. I bring all this up because every couple of days, someone comes up with something to question the whole valuation process of the former Magnificent Seven. Yesterday, it was Bank of America's turn. They issued a note about managing the risk of magnificent momentum. A note that laments their status as the big dogs now account for almost 20% of the world's market cap. Apple and Microsoft each are nearly the size of Japan, which is the second largest country in the MSCI at 6%. That in itself is supposed to seem ominous, I guess. Even more foreboding are the endless notes crossing my desk about how we have a bunch of undeserving companies leading the market that are totally unworthy of their valuations. Uh, Of course, you're told that in the end, it's going to lead to a stock apocalypse, not unlike when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. To which I come back and I say, will you stop it, please? uh, Enough already. Listen to me. Tonight, three mega cap companies, Meta, Amazon and Apple, reported and they collectively generated almost $330 billion in quarterly revenue and nearly $59 billion in net income in one quarter. If you added up all the profits of the top 20 stocks back in 2000, guess what? You probably had a negative number. There's just no comparison with the magnificence. More important, having lived through these days, the executives of these companies spent more time trying to figure out how they could get out of their owner's shareholder lockups or create hidden derivatives that would let them dump as much stock as possible. I know a couple of execs who were busy selling stock right after they spoke positively about their companies on air. Some of them were shorting their own stocks through related entities that were hidden. By 2000, it was all about financial engineering, the kind of engineering it took to take your money, typically small retail investors who first discovered electronic trading then, and engineering near a real nice house in Aspen and maybe a bungalow in St. Bart's. Oh, and then when were they allowed to stock, well, sell stock when they were allowed to? What they do? Okay, these companies did secondary offerings left and right instantly with a gigantic slug of stock for sale of their own, okay? Helped by shameless analysts looking for a huge payday. There was simply no place to put any of this chimerical merchandise, though. Many of the dot-coms had almost no revenue, let alone profits or even plans to have profits. They were too busy going out to dinner with M&A partners trying to unload their company and salespeople and analysts, all of whom were trying to get a merger going or some sort of activity that would allow them to make some money before the companies went out under. There, that's a great chore, huh? Of course, there were a couple real ones. I can think of one Amazon. That made it because it was always a legitimate operation. But I know 330 other companies that came public during the dot-com period, and they were worth billions and billions of dollars in the stock market at the top. 18 months later, most of them were worthless. And yet these are the companies that compared to the Super 6 or Eli Lilly or Tesla? That's just insane. Periodically, because of my age, I get to pull rank. I was there right in the scrum, bringing the profit list to street.com public to glowing reviews with a billion-dollar valuation and no real plan to stop losing money. 
I didn't like this. I listened. I watched. I heard. I wrote it all down in Confessions of a Street Addict, begging the underwriters not to let it go so high, please, because we couldn't ever equal what the market was saying we could do, given our hideous losses. And the notion of comparing any of these modern mega caps to the best of the dot-com era is fatuous, lacking in even a shred of rigor. Here's the bottom line. You may think that these mega cap stocks are somehow wrongly valued versus the rest of the market. I say you have to value them somehow, some way, and you can't just give them a gigantic bigness haircut because of their sales or earnings. But if you're saying that these companies remind you of 1999 to 2000, I say give me a break. I know who you were. You were probably in third grade back then, if not in Pampers or maybe the other guys like Loves. By the, by the way, if any of these scare tactics make you cash out of the companies that reported tonight, you can always tell people that you would have made a lot of money, but that money wouldn't have counted. Let's see if anyone believes you. Let's go to Jerry in Missouri. Jerry. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, Jerry. What's happening? Well, during uh, the club's monthly conference call last week and a subsequent video you sent to the club, you mentioned a trade that you like for four Chinese companies. Yes. So I purchased a few small positions in them, and uh, since then, then they're all down. Yes, they are. Yes, they are all down. down 10%. That's okay. I said buy small positions, and I would buy more. These are the cheapest stocks in the market. I have not liked the PRC. But I have to tell you that if you want actual, if you believe that the Chinese have to save their country, as I do, and the PRC has to stop this nonsense, they will start doing things that will amaze you. Remember, I have hated the Chinese stock market more than anyone else in this world. So for me to turn positive and to slowly recommend buying them is a huge change of pace for me. Everyone else burn the hell out of you. I just got started recommending them on a low basis and will buy more on the way down if I could. John in Ohio. John. Booyah, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Long-time listener. My question is Spirit Airlines. I bought it in 2020. We obviously know what's happening with JetBlue. Where do you see the future for Spirit? Here's the future. Sell, 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 Thank you. I'm trying to recover from a sell button. I'm sorry. What's up? No problem. Hey, um, so I'm going to go? Yeah. I, uh, so I'm, I'm an ex-PayPal employee. I was at PayPal for over a decade. And while I'm an engineer by trade, I spent the last five years uh, in a sales-related role, specifically as a solution architect. I worked um, specifically with the North American large enterprise merchants and what PayPal calls uh, the global accounts team, which were the which between the two are the largest merchants that PayPal has in terms of revenue and volume. Okay. So now I, along with my sales counterparts, spent an enormous amount of time, energy, and money con- uh, attempting to convince these merchants to move their credit card processing volume over to PayPal. All right. In, in almost every engagement I was involved in, this was our primary charge. This was the end game: was getting the credit card volume from. The, the, the merchants um, that PayPal deals with. All right. Sounds reasonable. Um, all right. Uh, look, here's my view on PayPal. There's a guy named Alex Chris. I saw him interviewed by uh, David Faber, my colleague. And uh, I really like what he had to say. And the guy is from Intuit. He's a hitter. 
Let, let's you know, own it. I, look, am I jumping up and down about it? No. I, I, you know, it's like the Japanese stocks. It's inexpensive. You can buy some right here. I really believe that. And you can buy some a little bit lower. It's called investing. I really like it. It's a cool thing. I've done it for a long time. All right, look, you might think the mega caps are overvalued and that we're in a repeat of the dot-com area. Man, I like the way Apple's trading after the bell. I say stop it already. If you keep using the analogy that these are all just a bunch of joker companies, it's going to cost yourself a fortune staying out of the way of Amazon and Meta. All right, maybe you get a better basis for Apple. Congratulations. Man, money take Brinker, symbol E, the company behind Chili's and Maggiano, soared today after earnings. So is it time for investors to take a bite of the stock for the long run? I like that. Maybe you can have two of them. I'm checking in with the CEO. And Amersports hit the public market today with a bit of a mixed reaction. What a gen I am. So how should you interpret the name and the state of the IPO market as a whole and of that piece of merchandise? I'm sharing what you need to know. And it may not be exactly the take you expected. And Banco Santander, the number one bank in Spain, reported yesterday. And I'm running through the numbers. And so far, I kind of like what I see. So let's speak to the executive chair and stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
we look at this incredible running Kramer Fave stock, Brinker International. It's a parent company of Chili's at Mangiano's. Stock that shot up more than three bucks today on top of two buck rally yesterday. When Brinker reported yesterday morning, they delivered a nice earnings beat and management also raised their full year forecast. Hence the stock's phenomenal move. So can this one keep climbing? Let's check in with Kevin Hockman, the president CEO of Brinker International. Get a better read on the quarter. Mr. Hockman, welcome back to Man Money. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, Kevin, I'm going to date myself right now. I, I met Mr. Brinker many, many years ago when I worked at Goldman Sachs, and he had explosive ideas and made you feel like you wanted to work there as a manager at a store, and he actually had specials. And you said to yourself, there is something between McDonald's and those special restaurants that you can't afford. I feel it's happening again. Maybe it's the advertising, maybe it's the service. You're bringing back what people may not have known about Norman Brinker. I want you to just speak for a second about how you are returning the legacy the way it was. Yeah, well, I appreciate the comparison to Norman Brinker. Um, uh, you know, I would say I'm a shadow of Norman Brinker. You know, we have guys like Doug Brooks, incredible CEO, Norman Brinker. These are larger than life individuals. I've been at this for a, about two years. so We got a lot of work ahead of us. But, you know, I appreciate you saying that. The teams are doing an amazing job getting back, making guests feel special, making team members feel special. The food is improving. The service levels are improving. And I think that stock price uh, appreciation is just a reflection of the, what the teams are doing and how they're getting after it to make guests feel special. Well, I'm a believer in the arc of a conference call. And you start with something that is a true building block. You're talking about the end of the turnover. And the beginning of people who want to have a better life by working at Brinker. Other than Chipotle, I've never heard that talked about at any other restaurant chain within the last 25 years, periodically Starbucks. But what it says to me is, is that you're getting people who want to work there. And so then when there's a lot of advertising and it drives customers, they're excited about all the hard work they have to do. Yeah, we are seeing incredible engagement with our managers. So we are at the top echelon of restaurants right now and managerial turnover. You know, the main reasons for that, and I said it on the call, you know, number one, they're being listened to and they're seeing those ideas start to show up in the restaurant. Number two, the business is growing. So their compensation is obviously growing with that. And number three, I think they, they know that we're all in this together. So it's our home office, what we call the RSC here, and the field teams working together. Uh, to both make team members feel special and guests feel special. And that's getting them fired up about being a part of our company. Well, they must like it when you see you did 20 incremental billings this last fiscal year. It's more than $50 billion incremental on top of that, which tells me that you have tremendous conviction in the food that and, and drink that you are offering right now. Yeah, well, you know, we, everybody wants growth, right? We want growth in the existing restaurants. We want to build new restaurants. And obviously, as we continue to improve formal economics through growing our same restaurant sales, as well as expanding margins, both the things that we did this quarter, you know, it's going to make it a whole lot easier to build. And so, you know, we're very excited about both new builds and we're even more excited about continuing to elevate the core business. All right. So tell me right now, uh, we saw some numbers out of American Express last Friday that uh, they had 11 percent growth in, re- in restaurants. If you had to try to do restaurant sales, if you had to posit what's happened uh, with the cultural zeitgeist of the country, why is every single age group and every single economic group going out for dinner more? Is it work from home and they want to go somewhere? Is there something about what happened in COVID that changed the idea of going out and having a nice meal? Yeah, you know, I think it's just universal, Jim, that, you know, people just want to have a little bit of a respite from their, you know, their everyday. Their things are so crazy. You know, whether you're working from home or you're working at an office, like the idea of having, you know, 60 minutes in your day, where there's just you're getting treated incredibly special, like you're you know everything's about you and the way our um, our teams do that 
you know, it's really all about elevating the experience. You, know, you can get uh, food uh, at home anywhere now. You know, it's at the click of a button. It's at the click of your phone. It's really about that service levels for about an hour of your day and making you feel special. And as long as we do that, I think we're going to continue to grow. I think you're going to continue to see restaurants grow along with that. Oh, we got to talk about Italian food. This Maggiano, I, look, I wasn't looking for anything big there. And I'm not saying I don't like it. We had a good one in Route 10. It's true. I'd love to take you there. But um, the, it's three times what I thought you'd do. So what's happening there? Because I would then put some chips toward that uh, that chain. Yeah, so the, the, you know they had a great holiday quarter. This is their big quarter, Q2. It's our Q2. The holidays are a big busy season, not just for the dining rooms, but also for banquets. Uh, they actually crushed it. You know, the teams were ready to go as we've seen some of that business come back now. And so they're fired up. And really, the sky's the limit for Maggiano's. We just hired a new president, Dominique Bertoloni. Uh, he's come from MGM, which is, you know, he's worked in all kinds of uh, restaurant concepts within uh, that company. And his big mantra is he's going to be bringing the magic back, just like Norman Brinker did all those years ago. He's going to be bringing that magic back to Maggiano's. All right, one last question. I know that uh, people made, every time I've mentioned this, people, they didn't know it. The largest seller of margaritas in America is Chili's. And how but, is that but you possible? Know what? I got a, I got a, I got a new one for you, Jim. All right. Every second of every day, on average, Chili sells a hamburger to a customer. We're that big of a burger player. It's 15% of our business, and it's about to get a whole lot bigger with some innovation that's coming. So that's another one to think about, not just margaritas, but we're also a big burger player. Well, that's why what I like to say sometimes is the market cap isn't big enough to address the success of the company. And, Kevin, that's how I feel about what you're doing right now, Brigger. Yeah, thanks so much. The, the future is quite bright for us. We're just getting started. Everybody asks me, well, what inning are we? It's early innings for this uh, for this growth rate. And I, you know, I just can't wait to get after it on both brands in the future. Fair enough. Thank you for coming on the show. Kevin Hockman, President CEO of Brinker, symbol EAT goes higher. Good to see you. Thank you, Jim. Absolutely. Back here. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The IPO market's up and running again this year, but so far, let's just call it a hit or miss. Last week, Bright Spring Health Services came public well below its proposed range. And then the stock got slammed after it started trading. There was just not enough demand for this private equity-backed healthcare play. But on the other hand, two cancer-oriented biotechs, both had successful deals. CG Oncology soared 96% on its first day. Uh, Aravent Biopharma, it's up uh, 22% from where it came public. I like that. Today, we got another IPO, a sporting goods and outdoor brands play called Sports. Now, you might not recognize the name, but you likely do know their products. Arcturix Outdoor Apparel, love that stuff. Solomon Winter Sports Equipment, Wilson Tennis Gear, Louisville Slugger Baseball Bats, among many others. Now, initially, Emmer Sports was looking to sell 100 million shares at $16 to $18 per share. But then we started hearing about pushback from investors, in part because the company's too exposed to China. 
Last night, the deal ended up pricing well below the range at $13 a share, and that was low enough to get the stock rallying today. Automate closed up about 3% from the offer price. So far, this is looking like another out-of-favor IPO, even if it's low-ball price uh, allow the stock to get, like, I guess you call it a decent pop. And I've got to tell you, this Amherst Sports is a great example of the kinds of deals that I wish we simply weren't seeing. For starters, it's a Chinese-owned company, and historically Chinese IPOs tend to be very poor performers, and they take your money and they just throw it into the chimney. Amherst was acquired by a consortium of investors back in 2019, led by Anta Sports, a Chinese sporting goods powerhouse, along with a Chinese private equity firm and Tencent, the Chinese tech titan. Even after this IPO, the consortium will still own a majority stake in the company, meaning the public shareholders are hostage to their decisions. They're going to take you where they want you. Problematic. But maybe the numbers are so good that they can make up for it. No. While Amerisports had impressive revenue growth last year, looking like 23%, a lot of that's because China reopened its economy after the lockdowns in 2022. There was real strength in the direct-to-consumer business, technical apparel, and outdoor performance wear, but ball and racket sports were not so hot. As for Amherst profitability, well, that's really a bit murkier. When you look at actual gap net income, which we like to do in Mad Money, the company is losing money with a net loss of over $200 million last year. Their EBITDA was up huge, but EBITDA doesn't include interest expense, and that's not very illuminating when we're dealing with a private equity-backed IPO that is just loaded to the gills with debt. You go to war with the balance sheet, you have not the balance sheet you want. Hey, speaking of the balance sheet, it's less than ideal, possibly hideous, depending upon which numbers you use. See, in the perspectives, Amersports presented its cash and debt balances as of the end of September 23rd, 2023. They did it in two different ways. They did it actual and they did it in adjusted. The adjusted numbers were updated to reflect a corporate reorganization that took place as part of the IPO process. And they also include the expected proceeds from the deal that Amer will use to pay down debt. However, those adjusted numbers assumed an IPO price of 17 bucks. And proceeds of $1.6 billion, when in reality, they only raised $1.365 billion because they couldn't do the deal at that price. When you look at what Amer calls the actual numbers, they've got two, they've got, get this, this is, this is incredible stuff. They've got $6.2 billion in net debt, mostly in the form of a loan from one of the larger shareholders, Anta Sports, the Chinese sporting goods powerhouse. More on that later. Using last year's rough EBITDA uh, estimate of $600 million, that means you're taking about a leverage ratio of greater than 10 which is flat out horrendous and embarrassing. Now, when you use the adjusted number, Emirates net debt load is around $2 billion, implying a leverage ratio of 3.3, which is manageable. Uh, but we know for a fact that the adjusted numbers are too optimistic, given where the IPO ended up pricing. And overall, I'm using a very diplomatic term by calling it murky. Plus, remember how Sports was supposed to use its IPO proceeds to pay down debt? Well, when CEO James Zeng came on Money Movers earlier today, with my colleagues, Carl Quintanilla and Sarah Eisen, Carl directly asked him what he'd do with the money he just raised. Listen to this. I would say the, the, the overall, we will grow all these three brands business in the future. So, I mean, uh, I think that the most uh, investment for us will continue to focus on our low, retail shop blowout and also increase our overall digital infrastructure setup. So, so that's the main uh, driven areas. Raise my eyebrows here. Yep, Zane talked about investing in growing the brands and investing in digital infrastructure, but he didn't talk about paying down debt, which was the plan that's in the prospectus. Right here. 
Maybe you misunderstood the question, but the plan was to spend it all on cleaning up the balance sheet. If Amherst Sports does anything else, that feels like, I guess, someone less couth than I am might call bait and switch. In the end, Amherst Sports is, for all intents and purposes, a murky Chinese company that's wrapped in some attractive global brands like Arcteryx, Solomon, Wilson. But as much as I like some of these brands, the closer you look at the story, the more red flags that you find. Uh, oh, and uh, to put a little color to this one, other than Nike, there's never really been a lot of success attributed to the kinds of sporting goods this company makes. Almost like none. The best thing that I can say about Amherst is it's, it's had good growth for the past couple of years, but that growth came primarily from China, which has gone from roughly 8% of Amherst sales in 2020 to nearly 20% in the nine months period ending last September. Makes sense since it's now owned by a bunch of Chinese firms. But do you want that much China exposure in an environment where their economy is in bad shape? Every company I deal with or own from my chapel trust that sells into the Chinese market right now is getting annihilated by China. I don't see why this will be any different at all. Although Amber boasted a 68% growth rate in China during the nine-month period ending last September, that's in large part because they were up against incredibly easy comparisons now that the lockdowns have ended. It's not repeatable, people. More important, how many Chinese consumers are positioned by pricey Arcturus outdoor gear Solomon's ski equipment? I mean, they're having trouble affording the Starbucks triple that thing cappuccino with skim wet. I know their government finally making real efforts to turn things around, but I think we're early. I could go on and on, but I'm not because you know what? I was having a real good day. How quickly will Amherst owners who still have large stakes in the company look to ring the register? What if Donald Trump wins in November and we get a new wave of tariffs on Amherst Chinese manufactured goods. And I'm still worried about that balance sheet. Heck, we, I didn't get over it in the last 38 seconds. Heck, we can't even trust the company's CEO to tell us what they'll do with the money they just raised. So, no, I don't want you to buy Amherst Sports. Not here, not now, not ever. And I have one more message to Amherst bankers, especially the lead underwriter, Goldman Sachs, which also happened to be the lead left underwriter for last week's dud of an IPO called Bright Spring Health Services. Listen, you underwriters, give us some better options. A successful IPO market is not a given. It can't be taken for granted. If you keep jamming these bad deals down our throats, people might lose interest in the entire IPO space just so you can make like one month of your quarter. Do not sacrifice your retail and institutional clients upon a cross of real bad IPOs. Bottom line, at any given time, there are good deals and there are bad deals. But usually when the IPI cycle is just ramping up, as it is right now, the bankers at least try to give you some good merchandise to draw you in. Then eventually they slam you upside the head with bad ones once you get complacent. They're not supposed to start with the bad ones. Honestly, I think the bankers are playing with fire when they try to sell stuff like Amher Sports. I just hope it doesn't poison the IPO well completely. In other words, underwriters, just say no. Let's go to Sandra in Florida, please, Sandra. Hi, how are you? Oh, not bad. How about you? Fine. Boo. Oh. Boo. <laughs> anyway, on arm, there were conflicting news on deep pocket investors for both longs and shorts for arm. And and I'm not sure. Is it longs or shorts? Because Okay, there are conflicting views. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but there are conflicting views, Sandra between people who are informed and people who are uninformed. That is often the case. Uh, and I have to tell you that Renee Haas and Arm Holdings are good, okay? If it comes in, and we're going to buy it for the Child Trust. That's my game plan. I just shared it with you. Now, despite its underwhelming debut, I still cannot recommend buying this Amersports down here. And to all the banks underwriting these deals, please give us some better deals before people lose interest in the entire IPO space, because that's what's going to happen. Show some remorse. 
much more made money ahead. Including my Susan Buckle Santander. From a dividend hike to a very solid quarter, I'm breaking down the latest with the company's executive chair. And if you're an industrial stock trying to break out here, I've spotted some criteria a company might possess in order to hold weight in this market, and I'm going to reveal what they are. And of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. We've been getting the results from the largest European banks, including one that I have long had a soft spot for, and that's Banco Santander. That's the number one bank in Spain, number four bank in Europe by assets, and one of the largest in the world by individual accounts. Yesterday morning, Santander reported a very solid quarter with inline revenue and a nice earnings beat thanks to strong lending results in Europe and Brazil. Even better, management was optimistic about the year ahead, and they also said to expect 50% dividend growth. Wow. Now, earlier today, we got a chance to sit down with Anna Boutin. She's Banco Santander's group's executive chair about the quarter, the dividend hike, and her firm's strategy going forward. Take a look. Anna, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be with you, Jim. Thank you. Well, it's been a remarkable year. Uh, You've expanded in a very, very, what I would say, successful way with double-digit growth when I thought you were doing high single-digit. Most importantly, you are returning more money to shareholders than I think any American bank, certainly. And you can do that because I think you're so well capitalized. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a great year. Uh, As I say, record results and, you know, delivered the right way. Growing customers, growing the top line, double digit, uh, growing profits, uh, double digit. And very importantly for shareholders, increasing uh, shareholder remuneration, cash dividend per share, up 50% if approved by shareholders and uh, with buybacks and dividends totaling 5.5 billion return to shareholders this year. Well, so yes, we are very happy. Uh, and I think one of the reasons you can do that is something that I think I always have to say, I'm sorry, but Americans don't realize how many accounts you have and how little risk you take with those accounts. Well, yes, we have uh, 165 million customers worldwide. That's about half the entire population of the U.S., by the way. That makes us one of the largest banks by number of customers. Um, And as you say, we are in growth markets, so we have many retail small accounts. In Latin America, we're number one. It's a region with more than 600 million people with structural secular growth. And very important, almost 50 percent of adults don't yet have an account. So, you know, being the number one bank there, is a huge growth opportunity uh, in countries that are increasingly uh, stable, especially countries like Mexico, Brazil, where, again, we serve 85 million customers. I think that a lot of people are what I regard as xenophobic in our country. They don't realize that you want to be in a growth company, a country like Brazil. You want to take advantage of the wondrous growth right now in Mexico. But you're in Germany. You're in Peru. You're in Poland. You're in Uruguay. Of course, United Kingdom, Morocco. How can you keep track of all these places? And as I look at the growth, other than Argentina, which is an asterisk country, you seem to want to be in the great growth of countries that are lesser developed, that are getting to be more developed. Well, the reality is that we are something very special because we have a global scale. If you look at how much we invest every year, we'd be top three in the U.S., for example, number of customers. But we also have local scale. So when you mention all those countries, the reality is that we have five large countries and actually nine countries where we are an at-scale player. That includes the United States, 
in the consumer auto business. This is really important. We can compete globally and we can leverage that global scale with the local scale. Uh, and very importantly, we have three main businesses, which, as you said at the beginning, gives us a lot of stability and diversification. And those three businesses are retail banking, consumer banking, and the corporate bank. And that, again, is 85% of our total. And we are now managing the bank through these global businesses, which means that, for example, in the U.S., we're going to bring our own proprietary technology to benefit the U.S. retail banking system. We will be launching that uh, this year. So again, our global scale allows us to compete in local markets where we also have scale and get more profitable over time. You've done something remarkable in our country, uh, particularly along the lines of what we just talked about, retail and commercial. You are the big presence in Miami. And those of us who live in New York recognize if we go down to Florida that that may be the next Wall Street. They certainly have a better tax regime. We have a lot of immigrants to Miami. Tell me about what business is like there right now. So in the U.S., we are very excited about our potential. Uh, we're really focusing on those global platforms, on those businesses where we have scale. One of them is the wealth management in Latin America, in Europe, and now in Miami. So we are going to expand from our Miami footprint across other, uh, you know, other states in the United States serving the, the private banking. But very importantly, we see a lot of upside in the overall uh, let's say, U.S. consumer with our digital platform will be launching in this year, in 24. Now, let's talk about your competitors in Europe. This morning, Deutsche Bank, it's been retreating for a very long time. Another 3,500 people are uh, being let go there. I find that, other, that the banks in Europe tend to be in retreat other than Santander. So what are you doing differently versus the banks that have either disappeared, as we know a major one did last year, or ones that are storied that seem to be stagnant? So we are playing to our strengths. As I said, we, we are focusing all our capital, our investment in businesses or regions or countries where we can really leverage this global scale with a local in-market scale. So again, the United States, we're an at-scale auto player. We're number five in the country. We finance a lot of Americans' cars so they can get to work, both subprime, near prime and prime now. Why is it we're competitive? Because we're the number one auto lender in Europe and in Latin America. We work with many of these auto companies in Europe. They want us to come with them to the United States. Again, that means we can grow leveraging uh, a business where we are number one. Now, what we want in the U.S. is to grow on the other side. So we have a, a retail bank in the U.S. It's a regional bank. In order for us to be competitive, we need to bring our own technology. We need to expand across the country so we can actually raise more customer deposits, open more current accounts, so we can actually grow on the other side. So again, we are very, very disciplined and very focused on putting our capital where it leverages and makes our strengths, let's say, even stronger, if I may. And that is really the key to the way we think about growth. So no new countries, no new businesses. Those five businesses that we've uh, actually organized the bank, we changed the reporting this year. That is where we will focus. All right. Uh, one last question, because you are a person of the world. Uh, some of us see nationalism rising. Some of us see tensions where... Uh, environmental concerns are taking second uh, fiddle to, frankly, to uh, security, national security. Uh, I know you're inherently an optimist, but can you give me a view of the world as you see it right now? So the world is uh, clearly, I, I said that in my statement yesterday, um, 
is increasingly volatile. Uh, geopolitics clearly is, is getting more difficult. Uh, it's going to have implications for businesses. But if I may, you know, that's something Santander has been dealing with for many years. You know, we operate in Latin America. So it's, it's actually a place where we can operate. And we are very confident 2024 will be even better for Santander. We've guided to 16% return on tangible equity this year in 24, which is actually, you know, a pretty high number, even compared to the American banks. Well, uh, Anna, I want to thank you for coming on. And congratulations on another good year. The return of capital will be most welcomed by all shareholders. I know many Americans would thrilled to be get that from, the, from banks that they're currently in. They should just look at Santander. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Hope to see you soon. Thank you. Bye. That's Anna Boutin. She's the executive chair, Banco Santander. The symbol is S-A-N. And I think it's a remarkable opportunity. We have money back here for the break. It is time. It's time for the Light Round. Chris Ravens, Fire Ruffle, and Arms. I'm standing by myself speaking over the plan. You're playing yourself. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Steve? Daddy, over the light round. Why don't we start with Doug in Alabama? Doug. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah, Doug. What's up? Yep. Well, I got uh, Chewy on my mind. I've, I've, I've had it. I know the last 60 days, it was $18. And uh, December 1st, it's $18 again. Yeah, look, I think it's fine. I mean, look, it's, I think it's going to have the last time we had them on, they're starting to tell a little bit better story. I think it's very low. And that's a, that's something worth taking a look at. Let's go to Jason in New York. Jason. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Jason. Shout out to my beautiful pregnant wife, Danielle. Booyah, Jim. Hey, how uh, you doing? Jim, I, we're doing great over here. We have a quick question for you. Uh, something that maybe you can make a little sense of. Sure. The airline stocks have been not really recovering like the cruise line stocks. One of the stocks in particular, JetBlue, obviously they have their mergers, you know, issues with Spirit, but that was just killed by the judge there. Uh, but, you know, look, I got to tell you, Jason, and congratulations to your, to your wife. I, my problem with JetBlue, I mean, these are airline stocks, and their airline stocks should have been making a lot more money, and I'm not going to start inventing reasons why we should own them. I just don't have any, except for a couple of them periodically in their trades. Andrew in Florida. Andrew. Hey, Jim, I just want to say a big thank you for everything that you do. Oh, thank uh, you, The man. research thank you and your team does has been amazing, nothing Love but team. helpful, and it's very much appreciated. Definitely, and I appreciate it. I'll pass it on to the, to, uh, the team, which uh, cares passionately about how good the product is and trying to make everybody look good. What's going on? Hey, with the housing market going kind of crazy these days, and uh, especially with the DIY explosion that's gone on over the last five years, cost of materials just going through the roof and really just hard to find as well. It's just so much in demand. Hey, I'm heavily positioned right now in Home Depot. Is it still worth buying more? Y- yeah, look, I like Home Depot. It's, it's had a very big run. Uh, may I suggest also, it does have a good yield. May I also suggest SWK. We sent a real great Bolton out to the club members, and I really think that SWK, which is, you know, this is the... You know, look, this is Stanley Black and Decker. Uh, their numbers haven't come back yet for the DIY. They've come back for the professional. It's got a 3.5% yield. I think it represents more value. Sam in Massachusetts. Sam. We are, Jim. We are. Um, I can't talk to you without mentioning the club. I just signed up for another year. It's, oh, um, thanks, it's always the best investment I make every year. I've been doing it for years. Thank it's you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And um, one more thing, if we could have a destination club meeting, you know, like Bermuda. You know, let's have a Bermuda club meeting. Look, don't look year. at me. I wanted one. I'm just, in the end, okay. I am just a player 
If not, I'll tell you let's what, just skip you that you issue. Call a, if you call a, call a club meeting in Bermuda, I'll call the airlines, make sure I can travel with a couple of cases of plus You know oil. what? I, here's what I am going to do. I'm going to reiterate my attempt to get that. Done. How about that? And I am, I am such a diplomat. Boy, my mom would be so proud. She would say, boy, look at Jimmy. He finally figured out how to say things about alienating all the bosses. What's the stock? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I can't believe that. But anyway, listen, uh, could you lay some market wisdom on me about um, some Schlumberjack? Oh, yeah, Slop. Look, they're doing well. They had that, the, the Aramco thing yesterday kind of shook everybody. I think you should buy some SLB. Thank you for that. I'm going to head to the, to the Bahamas right after the show is over. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Many industrials have struggled this earnings season, but now we're learning what wins. Infrastructure spend, which benefits from long-term megatrends fueled by massive government spending, and also aerospace, because we've got a worldwide airplane shortage. Take this morning. Eaton, one of the greatest industrials of our year, reported a fantastic quarter and laid out the roadmap. There's not much to it, even as it would allow the stock to shoot up more than 7% today. Basically, Eaton's about infrastructure, and they've got very strong underlying demand. Just listen to what CEO Craig Arnold had to say. Quote, long before we were talking about mega projects, we were talking about secular growth drivers. We were talking about energy transition. We were talking about the electrification of the economy. We were talking about digitization, end quote. Any industrial that plays in those areas is indeed hitting it out of the park. Here's how Leon Topalian, guest the other night, the CEO of Newcourse, puts it. That's our largest uh, steel company. Uh, we believe the American steel industry is still on the front end of megatrends, working their way into steel markets. We're starting to see some increased activity in certain markets like bridge and highway, semiconductor chip plants, EV factories, and renewable energy, end quote. Topalian went on to say that the strongest growth is, quote, coming from the sharp rise in advanced manufacturing and infrastructure investment, both expected to rise double digits over the next two years, end quote. Or how about TT, Train Technologies, which shot up 7% today on the strength of its heating, ventilation, and air conditioning businesses that are involved with infrastructure. Here's CEO David Regnery, quote, Global commercial heating, ventilation, air conditioning markets continue to be robust. We're thriving in key verticals such as data centers and high-tech industrials, end quote. This remarkable company saw commercial HVAC bookings up mid-teens and revenues are even stronger up mid-20s. That's incredible. By the way, I expect similarly excellent numbers when Carrier reports next Tuesday. Carrier stock is down for the year in part because of a complicated transaction that will ultimately help it grow its European business. But judging from training, the core business is strong. That's the infrastructure side. The other way for the industrials to win is aerospace, as we know from RTX, the old United Technologies that merged with Raytheon. RTX has a backlog that's the envy of practically the entire industry. By the way, Honeywell has tremendous exposure to aircraft, even though the overall company is what I would call still work, work in progress. Now, club members know we bought some stock in Honeywell today for the charitable trust. I say join it. You might be tempted to buy, too, especially when it's down so low. But the best one, bar none, is General Electric, which had such an amazing quarter, it can't build engines fast enough. Believe me, Boeing stock hangs in here despite a horrendous string of bad publicity that's going on for years for the simple reason that they're only one of two large-scale commercial aircraft makers on Earth. And we just don't have enough planes to sate the endless demand for travel. Who knows what happens when China turns around and the rising middle class starts taking overseas vacations again? 
Why do these megatrends mean so much to me? Because the bloviators who do nothing but thumbsuck about the Fed's next move, the top-down guys, they constantly miss these stories because they don't want to get their hands dirty reading through the conference calls. I don't know how they can do their jobs when they opine on the economy without knowing what the industrial CEOs who create the economy are actually saying. Maybe they think it's a waste of time. Funny. I think most of these Fed watchers are a waste of time. Stop trying to guess J-PAL's next move and start listening to the countless companies that are telling us exactly what's going on. That, and not silly, some silly guessing game, is how the big money gets made. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.